0: hi everybody i'm katie and i'm Rhiannon, and welcome to haunting cases <laughs> I've had like paranormal experience after paranormal experience this week. And it's just been like, oh my God, can we stop? Can we, can I have a break? Can oh, I have shit. a break? <laughs> <laughs> like a break, please. I have like a break, please. <laughs> uh... <laughs> so I'm a little bit like on my toes. I'm like, do I need to get the fucking sage out again? <laughs> Did you not learn your lesson the first time? oh no oh
1: god yeah i haven't had anything auditory for a little while but the other day i did see something in my mirror again um but like not at home like out and about in the vehicle in my vehicle mirror (laughs) that was a little weird it was in the middle of the day which that was a little weird on its own and I got such a quick glimpse at it, I couldn't tell if it was a naked person or a person wearing tan, like, almost skin-colored clothing. But it was definitely a person. Oh, God. <laughs> and it was in a spot where, like, looking around, I was like, there is nowhere anybody could have fucking run and hid. Like, if there was somebody behind my car or truck and I, like looked behind me to see them there like there's nowhere they could have fucking gone and i was like and i know i definitely saw somebody it was just a very quick like my eyes scanned my mirror and i kept looking i was like wait what and so i didn't like get to see the detailed features but i was definitely like that was a person and then i like looked around like who the fuck is here and i was like nobody that's great
0: that's great oh (laughs) my god well welcome into haunting cases i guess this is the way that we bring re back into the equation she's alive (laughs) i'm alive (laughs) Oh, my Ugh. God. Uh, so, Ray, how was yeah. your first hurricane?
1: <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I mean, thankfully, by the time it reached me, it was a tropical storm, not a hurricane. But <laughs> it still took our power out for five hours. <laughs> but that's all mm. good. It was all good. We had the, all the lanterns and shit right go. And we had our little hurricane survival kit of food just in case uh we didn't have power to cook with or we lost all the food it was very well timed uh we actually had just finished cooking dinner so we had all our our dinner ready to go when the power went out so it couldn't have been more convenient but yeah not not
0: uh not great but not terrible it was it was fine It's <laughs> good at least it wasn't like horrific or anything it could have been a lot worse and my thoughts are still with uh florida right now as they suffer and try to rebuild with the flooding in the area
1: yeah definitely definitely for sure if any of you listeners know anyone in florida definitely be sure to check in with them see how they're doing see if Mm -hmm. there's anything you can do to help and even if you don't know uh anybody in florida i know there's plenty of organizations out there that are doing what they can to help people in need uh so my heart definitely goes out to everybody down there who lost everything and is trying to rebuild now
0: yeah otherwise out here there's not much going on there's there's been like I said there's some weird activity going on in the house Um, right now I think it's at a neutral state because I have I have cleaned the house is clean so (laughs) hopefully we don't bring anything back in I would tell you the story but I'm like now I'm like worried that I might like conjure it back into my house I'm like I don't want to do that I don't want to do that (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. None of that. We don't want any of that. (laughs) It was definitely one of those moments, though, that was like, all right, everybody out. Everybody out of the clown car. (laughs) Like, it wasn't just like, I'm targeting one thing. I'm like, everybody needs to leave right now. Everybody, because I don't know what's going on. (laughs) But uh, I've sensed a couple of, like, certain spirits come back into the house and they're like... Is it okay for me to be here? Am I okay to be here? <laughs> I'm like, yes, you're fine to be here. This is this is your home as much as it's mine. And they're like, okay. And they go back to doing what they're doing. I'm like, just don't bring anything else in. It's not an open house party. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I definitely
1: remember uh, this weekend some messages from me. <laughs> Be like oh it's
0: a wake up and say kind of morning it, it was it really was I'm like I had a nightmare I woke up at four in the morning I looked at my phone and I started hearing like chuckling from the living room like a child's laugh and I looked at the time I'm like can I just go back to sleep and ignore this and about that time I started hearing like footsteps around I'm like I can't just go back to sleep and ignore this god damn it <laughs> Oh, damn. Well, hopefully uh, everything has been resolved now. (laughs) I mean, for the most part, outside of like at 3 AM this morning, because I'm a night owl, I don't sleep. I like to gaslight myself into thinking that we're an early morning person, and I wake up around 9 AM. So I only get like six hours of sleep. (laughs) It's probably not healthy for me. (laughs) (laughs) But it's the way that I live. Um, (laughs) I was laying in bed. I was scrolling through TikToks and I put my phone away because I was like, all right, time for sleep. We're going to sleep. I don't stay up typically later than 3am unless I'm like in an insomnia bout. Then it's like, oh, I'll see the light of day before my eyes fucking shut. So, and it'll be that way for a couple of days in a row. But I put my phone down. I'm laying in bed. I'm going to sleep and I hear whistling. I'm like, oh, fuck no. And it, I can hear it on the back porch, and like the things that are going through my head is like either A, it's one of the local crackheads rummaging through stuff, or B, it's a flesh pedestrian, and I want none of the sauce either way. <laughs> Absolutely none of it. Yeah, I can't really blame you there. It's just like, all right. So I rolled over. I grabbed my phone and we went back to TikTok and I'm like I didn't hear shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But anyways, today I was supposed to grab a mini case and I didn't. <laughs>
1: yes, we had a plan
0: for going back to our more traditional
1: style when we started out of uh, each of us presenting a case in the same episode today because we were trying to have less work to do because the hurricane kind of messed up our plans that we had for recording, and we had to kind of throw everything out the window and come up with a new plan. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the the mini case that was supposed to be a mini case is no longer a mini case.
0: <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It I. I if it makes you feel better, it was unintentional. And when I looked at the Wikipedia page, because I go to Wikipedia first, and then I go and grab the sources off of Wikipedia to other news sources and start reading from there, there's only like two paragraphs on Wikipedia. And I was like, oh, this is gonna be great. This is gonna be small. I'll find a little bit of additional research that, I'll find a little bit of additional research that's not on here, and yeah. A little bit of additional research turned into a lot of additional research. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sorry, but you get true crime for a second week in a row. But before we get started, let's give you guys some trigger warnings. While we understand that some individuals listen for the entertainment aspect of true crime, It's important to remember that these are real people with families and friends who may still be suffering from their loss. These stories are not meant to open old wounds or cause further emotional damage to those involved. We remind you to please be respectful, do not dox or contact those involved with cases. While paranormal occurrences and
1: urban legends may be sources of tourism, please be considerate if you visit one of these locations. Do not engage in trespassing and be sure to ask for permission if you plan on recording. Be aware of your surroundings and travel safely. The cases discussed in this podcast may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion
0: is advised. episode we will be discussing cases involving more than one of the following children sexual assault domestic violence and suicide as always listener discretion is advised if you or someone you know has a child who has been victimized please call the proper authorities and look at missingkids.org or call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's hotline at 800 843 56 for more helpful resources. If you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual assault, please reach out
1: to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at
0: 800-656-4673. If you or someone you know has been a victim of domestic violence, please reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-72. And if you or someone you know
1: is experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. Now, back to the show.
0: Okay, we are back for re- first episode back it's a (laughs) catch-all yeah she was listening to the audio because i was putting it in and editing at the same time and she goes oh great (laughs) it's a (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) catch-all
1: this is how you bring me
0: in not not slowly and gently (laughs) no no i'm not gonna cradle you i'm not gonna i'm not gonna baby you Reeve. okay stand up get out of the stroller get walking (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) As an additional, like, little trigger warning before we get into this, because I know some people that do listen to us frequently have some problems with um, regurgitation. This one has a lot of that in here. If that's not your cup of tea, completely understand. Feel free to bypass this. You may also listen to it if you feel that your stomach is strong enough to handle it, but there is a lot of, unfortunately, vomiting.
1: Yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even think about that, but I do know some folks that are, are not interested in those kinds of stories. For thank you, for, so thank you for the additional trigger warning.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just a little side note because, like, even like at some points during this, I was getting a little gaggy. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, oh god. So. Okay. All right. Re, are you ready to get started today? <laughs> I
1: think so. I hope so. I did want to say, though, really quick, I totally forgot to say at the top, but thank you to Mama Rex. I uh, just wanted to shout out. thank you really quick first stepping in when i got hit by a storm and could not record i
0: forgot to say that at the top so really quick shout out to mama rex thank you so much <laughs> thank you mama Source rex we love you very much if you guys want to see more with her make sure to head over to my youtube kia rex on youtube it's k-i-y-a-r-e-x should have a cute little dinosaur with a galaxy themed background around it for the profile picture We're currently running through Manama Dan over there, and then Little Hope will be coming up soon. So, most of my research for today comes from a source that I really just kind of like mocked to my mom because I called her and I told her about it. I was like, oh, I guess I'm just doing the Poisoner's Handbook. And like, it was meant as a joke, it was meant as a joke. (laughs) But this case is predominantly featured in the arsenic section of the Poisoner's Handbook, The Murder and Birth mm. of Forensic Medicine in the Jazz Age of New York. So if you're interested in learning more about this case, look over there. Also, another really good resource that I came across, although there are some differentiating like character names in there, was death row women, murder, justice, and the New York press. So those are our two main sources for this whole thing. And my God, did they provide. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, here we go. (laughs) So, Mary Frances Avery was born in the city of Rahway, New Jersey in the year of 1899. By the time she was a teenager, both of her parents had died, and this had a lasting effect on the girl, known by many as Fran, or Franny, or Frances, but we're going to call her Mary. Mary, her brother, and her two sisters were effectively orphans by the time that she was about 15 years old, and they were taken in by affluent grandparents. Mary moved to Newark where she was about 15 years old and was finishing most of her education in public schools. During her years in schools, she had very few achievements academically to show for, she didn't participate in sports or clubs, and she had very few friends, effectively keeping to herself most of the time and during her high school years, basically isolating herself from any other public eye. In 1917, at the age of 18 years old, Mary met John Crichton, a young, handsome sailor who was unfortunately on his way to Europe to fight in the First World War. As many individuals at this time did with deployment of troops and the war going on, the two were quickly married, with John moving Mary into his parents' home Walter and Anna Crichton this was a big two-story home by all records and it was in a nicer neighborhood of Newark New Jersey by the time Mary was in her early 20s she was known for her rather lovely looks dark hair curling in waves complementing her skin and deep luminous eyes and she had the traits of a Madonna meaning that she seemed saintly or very innocent Not like Madonna, the rock star Madonna. She's not around (laughs) during this time. (laughs) Very different kind of Madonna. (laughs) Very different type of Madonna. She was also known for her meticulous lifestyle, specifically when it came to her appearance and for being matronly. She did not use foul language and was mindful of her manners. However, it was also known that she had a bad temper and did not like her in-laws. Ooh. <laughs> According to Find a Grave, Mary gave birth to a girl in 1919, and soon the house began to feel very crowded and uncomfortable. A boy soon followed around the year of, like, 1921. However, it's not fully clear if that's the correct date or not. To make matters worse during this time, Mary and Annie were battling each other for supremacy in the household.
1: Ooh, yeah, that's not good.
0: So rumors began to spread to neighbors from Mary that her mother-in-law was a disturbed woman who was determined to commit suicide. Coincidentally, a few weeks after repeating this rumor, Annie Crichton became seriously ill with a fever, rampant diarrhea, and continuous vomiting. Doctors, try as they might to save her, were unable to. And Annie finally died of her illness on December 1st of 1920. She was 47 years old at the time, and the cause of death was listed as toxemia, which is a very serious form of food poisoning thought to be caused by the putrefying like meat of animals and vegetable matter so it's going bad and it's that bacteria growth that comes off of really bad food Ugh. yeah also just as like a note her name does differentiate between multiple sources sometimes it's Annie sometimes it's Anne the one that i noticed the most was Annie So just as a note, if I do mix up the two, I do apologize. But it was Annie from what I was finding. With Annie's passing, Walter blamed Mary for the death, but was unable to articulate or prove why he thought so. Mary was very unfazed by this, though, and she attended bridge parties with her neighbors and told friends that her father-in-law was becoming seriously ill as well and appeared to have the same illness that had struck his wife down not too long ago. (laughs) Walter then began to develop severe abdominal pain, which proceeded into continuous aggravated vomiting. Within days of developing these symptoms, Walter was dead. Oh, god now his find a grave like resource that i went and found off of um, mary's own find a grave profile said that he passed in 1921 but it is noted in the poisoner's handbook that it was within the same year as annie and his cause of death was also listed as a heart ailment so it did differentiate a little Hmm. bit from how annie had passed
1: that's interesting that they believed it was a heart ailment with those symptoms i do know like with heart attack you can have uh digestive system related uh symptoms Mm -hmm. like nausea and that sort of thing related to if you're having a heart attack i do know that is a potential symptom of heart attack but it still seems interesting to me that if the primary symptoms were abdominal cramping and vomiting uh that they would label that as a heart um some sort of heart condition that led to the death unless perhaps maybe he had a, a history of heart problems and that's the why they thought it was his heart but that's just that kind of jumps out to me as interesting
0: yeah absolutely and that's kind of what i thought up too but i was like okay this is the 1920s maybe we don't fully understand how the cardiovascular system works maybe there's still some things going on that are left to question of how people die so I'm like, OK, keeping an open mind on that, maybe they thought with the indigestion, the severe like vomiting and the aggravation with the stomach, like it might have been heart-related. But it also might be that in the way that he was found, it looked more like it was a heart attack than anything else.
1: Oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. That mm-hmm. could be that maybe the way he was acting right before death or how they found him kind of hit more towards that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So the young couple kept in themselves following this, and John was absolutely devastated with his parents' death. But no one ever seemed to suspect Mary of any wrongdoing. John started working as a clerk, and from what I could find, it sounded like it was at like one of the local like stores nearby, either a grocery store or maybe like a drugstore. store. And Mary focused on caring for her daughter Ruth as the three shared the home according to friends and neighbors she became very unfriendly at this time neighbors complained of her attitude and her wrongdoings and when called upon as like to come out and do things or even like for help they were very unsociable Charles Avery, Mary's brother, and her two sisters lived nearby with their maternal grandparents. While Mary didn't really get along with her sisters as they quarreled over the inheritance left by their parents, it seemed like her brother got along with her fairly well. Now, it's thought that maybe out of feeling lonely, in the housewife position, in a big home in the early 1920s, Charles came to spend a weekend in 1923. Mary then persuaded him to stay a while longer and that she'd help him find a job as a clerk in a neighborhood store. Charles was soon working within a store, sweeping floors, stacking boxes, and working as a clerk as well. Several months later, though, 19-year-old Charles began to suffer from ill health and decided that he needed to visit a doctor around April 5th complaining of a dull ache in his abdomen and perpetual thirst that left his mouth dry and his tongue furred. The doctor prescribed him a tonic, diagnosed him with a simple mild infection, and sent him home. On April 12th, Charles returned to the doctor. He was now stating that he was constantly nauseated and had developed a burning sore throat. Again, the doctor prescribed medication and sent him home. However, Charles' condition quickly worsened. On the night of April 20th, Charles suffered a seizure, which had Mary running to the streets, calling her neighbors for help, asking for anyone to come over and help her, and that he was making a strange noise with his throat. Oh, my God. The neighbors refused one by one, as many of them had been friends with the Elder Crichtons now passed, and did not care for the new mistress in the household and did not want to aid her failing family member. The doctor was summoned again, and to his shock, the boy was now in a dying state, vomiting uncontrollably, and his limbs had stiffened and began to shake. The doctor was concerned and worried that he had done something wrong. Why was the boy so ill? Charles died in early May from the illness. And when the doctor called upon other physicians asking them to grant him advice on the death certificate, they simply said that it was violent gastroenteritis, something very similar to what would have killed John's mother. So... With that thought on the minds of a couple pathologists, they decided to make a statement of this on his death certificate, and it might have stayed that way aside from an anonymous letter coming in to police. Oh. Is death not ground for suspicion? The letter read, noting that Charles' death was just as peculiar as the Crichton's death. Additionally, the note mentioned that this boy feared his sister as he feared death. I am very sorry that I cannot sign my name. I am just an outsider who is very fond of this boy. Please act quickly and beware. You will not find it hard to trap this liar.
1: That's a little cryptic.
0: It's a little cryptic. But this was enough to send a detective out to ask a couple questions. Of the attending physician of Charles. They found that the doctor was unhappy with his diagnosis and that he was shocked when he had discovered the boy in a dying state. In addition, he was also very rocked by the Crichton's sudden death. The police then made a discovery that in the short time that Charles had been living with Mary, she'd actually persuaded him to invest in a $1,000 insurance policy and name her as the beneficiary.
1: Oh, mhm. I was wondering I was like you know what if there's a, I see a connection here between these three deaths and I have a feeling it's her but why her brother like I don't understand if she had a good relationship with him why now I see why
0: <laughs> yeah I'm like oof they then made their way to Charles's place of employment Charles apparently had mentioned to the owner of the store how he was constantly being fed chocolate pudding at home and was getting really tired of it but no matter how much he complained to Mary and insisted that he did not want to eat it prior to bedtime she pushed him to eat just a little bit which made him feel even more baffled about the determination and insistency for him to eat dessert.
1: Oh, I don't like that chocolate's a strong flavor too so I feel like mm-hmm. you can hide things with chocolate that's a, a flavor I feel like that you could use to mask some things so I don't like that at all yeah I
0: don't like it either this sent alarm bells ringing with detectives and they decided to pay a visit to the Crichton household upon searching the residents they didn't seem to find any secret poison stash like that of what we talked about in the Rinzi estate from last episode But they did find one thing that made their suspicions go up. Mary's pale, clear skin held no secrets about the chemistry behind it. Fowler's Solution, a popular tonic that one could buy from any pharmacy at the time in the name of beauty. Now, Fowler's Solution became something that toxicologists knew to be an arsenic solution that created a near-translucent look by topically poisoning the user when put on the skin
1: yes oh my gosh i watched a webinar about like this sort of thing uh, a few months ago about basically like fashion of that period including makeup and when Mm. i found that out i was just like damn people were poisoning themselves for what was perceived to be good looks at the time like that just blew my mind so as soon as you brought up the
0: the solution i was like i bet you it's the fucking makeup <laughs> <laughs> well are you ready for this i went looking for fowler solution and when i came across like it's wikipedia page granted take wikipedia with a grain of salt like i usually go and look at different resources too like when i look at wikipedia but just off of like the top like little section of it and what sites were sourced apparently Fowler's solution was very popular upwards to the 1990s. What? Yeah. Oh, my God. I don't know if the formula had ever changed during that period of time or what had gone on, but it was still in stores. I'm like, And it's a known carcinogenic substance that was proven to cause urinary cancer along with several other things in relation to melanoma even oh yeah
1: damn yeah I would not have expected it to last that long unless right? like you said, it's possible they changed the ingredients I mean there's possibility there but still like
0: whoo, wow yeah ugh, but it's like my ugh. mom and I got into this whole conversation about how certain items throughout the household in like the 1920s and even upwards to when she was a little girl contained things like cocaine and heroin and arsenic and lead and it was just like you were constantly like in danger of poisoning yourself because these are just things that are laying around your house
1: shit yeah i mean especially lead i don't want to rabbit hole too much but (laughs) i was listening to a podcast the other day and and they were talking about this one scientist that did experiments with lead and during his experiments he found out there's basically like lead in everything at that time Mm -hmm. like lead in paint lead in i can't remember off the top of my head now what all they found but i mean just in so many things and it got to the point where the scientist found it was like literally in people's hair and in the water it was and everything because it was in oh yeah it was also in like all the the metal furniture and stuff so not just the paint but I mean in all these different things and so it was basically contaminating everything that even if this object didn't have lead in it it ended up with lead on it from the surrounding environment so I mean Mm -hmm. lead's such a big one from back then but yeah all the other stuff like the arsenic and everything else it's crazy to think about
0: well it's like it's even big in like the 90s too because there was a lot of like toys and like drink cups that came from we won't name names of corporations, but like kids' meals um, that actually had lead paint on them. I actually have a cup that has lead paint on it. Shit. Oh,
1: but my God.
0: But it's like looking back at some of the toys that I played with as a kid, and it's like, by the way, it has lead paint. I'm like, oh, I sucked on that. Like, it was my <laughs> fucking thumb. Cool. Is that why I have digestive Uh, problems now? uh, Yeah, I mean,
1: I was just thinking that as soon as you said, like, kids, toys with lead paint, I immediately went straight to you. Little kids like to suck on things. Like, that's Mm -hmm. just something that little kids do. They suck on their toys. So I was like, that doesn't sound good.
0: Yeah, nope. I'm like, oh, that explains a lot in my life now. (laughs) But anyway... Uh. Fowler's solution was found at the residence, and wouldn't you know, the bottle was half-empty. The police then arrested both Mary and John on suspicion of conspiracy to kill Charles, and ordered an exhumation of Charles' grave as well as both of the elder Crichtons. John and Mary hired one of the best defense attorneys in New Jersey at the time in response to their arrest a prosecutor named James McCarthy, and he wasted little time with the case and instantly began proclaiming his client's innocence, stating to press that it was absolutely convincing that they had nothing to do with this. The Crichtons were shocked that Charles had arsenic in his system, but stated that they were unsure how it even got there or where it came from suggesting that maybe he'd even dosed himself with the poison.
1: I mean, if he was going to commit suicide, that seems like a a terrible way to go.
0: That's a rough way to go out.
1: Yeah. So I would have to imagine that would have had to been accidental somehow if he had dosed Mm -hmm. himself. I can't imagine if he was suicidal, that would have been his choice method. So that definitely seems like an unlikely argument.
0: Yeah, which we talked about a little bit last week with... um, Vera Renzi that she may have possibly actually had an inhalation dose because of the pure form of arsenic that she was working with. Mm. So it could have been possible as Charles worked at a grocery store and had easy access to the product called rough on rats. There was also mm. theory that maybe he was addicted and one of the dedicated arsenic eaters that were known throughout Europe at the time and the spreading trend of the folklore, in particular where it originated was in Southeastern Austria, where individuals smeared arsenic on a piece of toast in old folklore tradition to improve their health and provide some type of immunity to the poison in the future. That's not how that works. Please don't do that. Uh yeah. McCarthy followed suit stating that my clients certainly know nothing about how it came to be there. And this point was hammered throughout the trial and McCarthy made certain points to circumstantial evidence that the Fowler solution in the household had simply been there in an innocent meaning. It was popular in thousands of households at the time and it was used for beauty. Furthermore, Cartwright went on to note how diluted the mix actually was, with it being one part arsenic to 100 parts liquid. It would take gallons to achieve what the new work chemists have found in Charles' body, which was four times the lethal dose. Whew. To which I definitely want to take a moment, because going back on things that were in beauty products and other chemicals at the time what was the other components in that liquid solution though because obviously it's not just like arsenic and water there's other things in there yeah
1: that's a good point i didn't think about that and especially it's too when you even mentioned like him working at the store potentially getting exposed to that route i mean it might have not been even exposed to arsenic it could have been exposed to something else through the store so maybe it was a combined effect of he's getting dosed here mm-hmm. through the murder aspect but also maybe environmentally with all these things in his environment he's potentially taking in it might have that could definitely contribute it couldn't could have been something in addition to what was being fed to him that got into his system just from the environment
0: Yep. McCarthy also brought up how the letters may have simply been from spiteful neighbors. After all, it was known that Mary was not the favorite neighbor after the Elder Crichtons had passed. Additionally, none of them had come to help Mary when she called out asking for aid with Charles. Furthermore, the thought that it was an insurance payout of $1,000 was thought to be laughable in the courtroom as the $1,000 would most likely cover the funeral expenses, and after that only a couple hundred would most likely remain. Granted, John only earned $30 a week at that time, but that was the same for many people during this time in the United States, and they weren't mixing poison into the family pudding. The prosecutor should have argued the fact that McCarthy was simply stating alternate theories to possible facts. However, with lack of evidence in this case and the possibility of a self-administrated overdose, there was little left to do other than acquit Mary and John of all charges on June 23rd. Reporters waiting in the courtroom for the verdict remarked about a smile that had appeared across Mary's face as she fainted into her lawyer's arms. However, the Elder Crichton's remains were examined in May and were not part of this trial. After several weeks and during the Avery trial, John Sr.'s body appeared to be clean of any poison, but his wife, Annie, had white crystalline structures inside of her, structures that appeared to be arsenic.
1: Oh, I hate to think about that biologically. Like, oh, I don't like that. That sounds terrible. Mm -hmm. Terrible for your health. I mean, obviously it is, but just imagining that inside your body. (laughs) I'm just
0: thinking, like, that's not supposed to be there. I don't like that. Yeah, no, that's not supposed to be there. So just one day after the acquitting of the Charles Avery case, Mary was again arrested and charged with the murder of her mother-in-law. The prosecutor decided that he did not need to charge John this time, as it wasn't likely that he was a suspect, and he had began to theorize that Mary was the killer in the household. The prosecutor, Victor D'Alio, told the second jury that exact thought process, noting how a nurse, who had actually come to care for Annie for some time, noted she'd become sick after Mary had fixed her a cup of cocoa. As she grew sicker, Mary stepped in to aid the nurse with Annie. Also mentioning that one morning when Mary took over the position of caregiver so the nurse could go have breakfast in the kitchen, she would returned 20 minutes later to Annie's eyes wide, fixed at the door in terror. Upon asking Annie what had happened, she turned and vomited onto the floor forcing the nurse to call the doctor immediately. The doctor and the nurse fought to save her, but ultimately, we know that Annie succumbed to this illness, passing early that December morning. Reporters, upon learning this information, flocked to John for a statement to which he told them, I know that Fanny is guiltless of killing my mother. If my mother died from unnatural causes, i know in my innermost heart that my wife is innocence of responsibility for her death
1: oh uh, he's damn he's like i mean honestly if you're really in love with somebody i think it's really hard to imagine that somebody you're in love with could do something like that to you like kill your freaking parents yeah oh my god like that would be so hard to imagine so i can't really blame him for that
0: The prosecution then called on expert witness testimony from Otto Schultz of Columbia University and Harrison Martland of Newar City Hospital, who at the time was considered to be one of the best forensic scientists and pathologists on the East Coast. Both of these men believed that Mary had killed Annie after the examination of her remains. Mary's lawyer brought in three expert witnesses of his own to counter the testimonies of the prosecution's team, to which the first doctor said that there was still reason for the original diagnosis of Tomein, and that there were few lesions in or on the body to support arsenic poisoning. The second expert, a Bellevue pathologist, came to the same conclusion, noting that the lethal dose of arsenic would have caused a classic internal damage, the predictable characteristics of said poison. There should have been lesions. Alexander Gettler, the third witness, offered a chemist's explanation of why a small amount of arsenic may have been found inside the body. Now, this is something I didn't know and I found really cool, so I wanted to add it in. But Gettler had actually been sent samples from the pathologist's office and used the Reinscher's test, amongst others, to pick out the layers of chemical like identities to identify what was this white substance that was crystalling inside of Annie. The product which resembled arsenic was actually the remnants of another element called bismuth. Oh, okay like arsenic bismuth was a metallic element used in medicines in particular an anti-nausea and anti-diarrhea formula one of the most popular brands of bismol which was developed in 1901 by a pediatrician seeking to alleviate infant chloria the solution a wintergreen flavor and taste, and a pastel pink in color was renamed Pepto-Bismol in
1: 1919. Wow. Oh my gosh, that's crazy to think about.
0: Yeah, know, like, oh, wow, that's really cool. I did not know that. Yeah, that's interesting. Furthermore, Gettler stated that Annie's doctors suggested that she take Pepto-Bismol, but instead prescribed her a different style, but similar to the bismuth formula. Now, it's important to note that some of these formulas did not always remove the bismuth side chemicals, which were other heavy metals that could cause health problems, in particular arsenic and lead. And they were frequently found in bismuth-based medications.
1: Oh my gosh. So the doctors are trying to save their lives and instead potentially poisoning them back Mm -hmm. then because the medications were not properly made.
0: Yep. This was exactly what Annie's remains were showing Gettler. The poison was not by the hand of Mary, but by a contamination, a medicine that was prescribed to her. Once again, for the second time in three weeks, Mary walked out of the courthouse, a free woman, on Friday, July 13th. Reporters swarmed her for a statement, to which she responded she only wanted to be reunited with her children. I bear no malice towards anyone. I realize the prosecutor did his duty. I have no plans for the future. And I don't know what I shall do. I am too happy with my family just now to think of anything else. But I shall never forget Friday the 13th. After the second trial, Mary and her family relocated to a small cottage off Long Island. By 1935, Mary's once charming Madonna looks had begun to fade and age began to catch up with her. Now, it's rudely described in the Poisoner's Handbook how she looks, but... She had definitely put on some weight and she had formed a triple chin and her stout like structure like seemed almost like become worse. And at one point they called her a frog, which I'm like, wow, you're brutal. But this is an older brook book, but that's still brutal. Damn! Yeah, that's rude. That's rude. Wow. I'm like, oh my god. So The Great Depression at this time was in full swing, and the Crichtons became a pair of boarders to John's army acquaintance, a man named Everett Applegate, his daughter Angus, and his sharp-tongued, morbidly obese wife Ada. From the beginning, the household began to feel chaotic and cramped with the amount of people living in the home. The two teenage girls actually had to resort to sleeping in the dark, dingy attic where there was no heating or electricity. Jackie Crichton, Mary and John's second child, age 12 at the time, had to resort to sleeping on the floor wherever he could find space. Aww. Everett became known to the children as Uncle Ev, and before long, he began to embark on a very dark path. His goal was to seduce the 15-year-old daughter, Ruth. Everett went as far as to take Ruth to school and around town to do errands in his car. And before long, this experience became intimate. Everett quickly became obsessed with Ruth and maintained a secret relationship with her. Ada was angry most days, screaming at Everett whenever he'd come home and degraded him in front of his friends. And Mary really tried to keep the peace in some order in the house at the time, picking up after everyone, keeping the place clean, making sure that kids are going to bed on time, so on and so forth. Everett saw this as yet another opportunity for possible sexual conquest and began complimenting Mary for her efforts around the house and how much he appreciated her. Mary notes that he tried to become familiar with her, and as much as she tried to resist, she did not quite succeed. In January of 1935, Everett and Mary became intimate as well. Wow, he's getting around. Right. And unknown to Mary at the time, he had also continued to have a sexual relationship with her 15-year-old daughter, Ruth. Oh, God. Now, it was unclear how Mary found out about the situation with Ruth. There's a couple different theories that she started having, like, that sixth sense, that gut feeling about the situation. And then there's other circumstances that Ruth, like, confronted her mother about going after her man. Oh, okay. And... It, it's a whole mess. It's a whole mess. But instead of being angry about the situation, Mary was merely disapproving, but allowed it to continue. Damn. So she's a terrible mother as well. hmm So ah. we won't get too much into it, but apparently Ada had also become aware of the situation and did nothing to stop it. But differently than Mary, it seemed that she actually approved of this. Ew. However, there are later accounts of Ada talking to neighbors about the scandalous affair and how Ruth was a spoiled brat of a child. And ultimately, she was that way because of her mother.
1: Wow. Ugh. I mean, I don't know. It seems like Ada had some issues with her husband and maybe there were some relationship problems there. So part of me is like, you know, if it was just Mary, I could maybe see that as her being like, you know what? I'm not really interested in him anymore. I don't really want to be with him anymore. But maybe, but in the time period, you know, it wasn't really a thing to divorce. So you know, maybe at that point she had disconnected from the relationship it was just like i don't really like this man anymore so that i can maybe see i still don't agree with it but i mean i could see it but the whole being okay with the whole 15 year old no there is nothing okay about that and i don't know how you could think that's okay that's yeah so, so bad I'm like, and oh. both of two women in the household and both of them know about it and they're just like eh, whatever like how How is that a thing? That Mm -hmm. really bothers me.
0: Like, this is the part where I told you, I'm like, it's just getting worse and worse (sighs) and worse. I'm like, by the time I reach this point, I'm like, I need to fucking step away for a moment because I am angry and I am disgusted. That is a child. That is a fucking child. Yes. Shit. Continuing on these rumors that ada had started eventually started to circle around town and it wasn't long before they made it back to mary it was embarrassing to mary that the entire neighborhood knew about her promiscuous daughter and how her conduct reflected on her as a mother
1: wow so this is what matters to her is her reputation About her daughter being promiscuous and not the fact that an elderly man, or I don't know if elderly is a proper word, but an older gentleman has groomed her daughter. Like, she's more concerned about her own reputation. That's infuriating.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Mary eventually discovered that these rumors were spread by Ada herself and became enraged. (sighs) Later stating that i would have given anything to get rid of them only i was afraid to put them out as my husband would find the reason why mary and everett later remarked to each other and confided in each other about how much both of them detested ada and with everett's obsession of ruth growing and his determination to marry the child he and mary Ah. set out to rid themselves of ada after all, Mary knew how to deal with difficult people. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. On the morning of September 17th, 1935, Ada became severely ill, suffering stomach pains that made her scream and constantly vomit. Everett called the doctor, who decided to send her to Nassau County Hospital. Over the next couple of days, her health improved and she was discharged and sent home. That night, however, Everett prepared a glass of eggnog for Ada. Mary took the glass into the bedroom and left it on the nightside table. Everett aided Ada in drinking it, and eventually the two went to sleep. Hours later, he was awoken to Ada screaming, pacing the floor like a madwoman, and talking to things that simply were not there. She'd once again started experiencing stomach cramps and had actually gotten sick in bed. Oh. Mary aided in cleaning the mess, and they put Ada back to bed. A short time later, she awoke again with intense abdominal pain spiking. She rambled about in the bedroom, and then she suddenly fell over onto the floor. According to Everett, he had attempted to revive her, but failed. And at 6.25 a.m., police were called, and the officer summoned an ambulance. Ada was dead, and the two physicians, Dr. Spencer Cladwell and Dr. Alexander Zabane, surmised that she'd suffered a heart attack. Damn. Later that afternoon, though, at the Nassau County police department, patrolman Joseph O'Connor went to see Inspector Harold King, the commanding officer of the detective's division. O'Connor brought with him articles from the New York Daily News from 1923, detailing the consecutive back-to-back trials of Mary Frances Crichton in the poisoning of her brother and her mother-in-law. O'Connor explained that the neighbor had come to him with suspicions that the Crichtons might have something to do with Ada's death. She would heard of the rumors in New Jersey's case, and she obtained the articles to give to O'Connor. King told his detectives to get a hold of Applegate and make sure that the Crichtons know nothing about it. Then, go back and talk to the woman who provided the articles. These officers did just that. And later that afternoon, officers returned to the station telling an interesting story about how a neighbor said she suspected Mary of stealing cash from her home during a visit. She later confronted Mary, who denied it, but Mary brought over a cake as a peace offering anyway. Upon eating this cake, the neighbor became violently sick and suffered vomiting spells. She then accused Mary of poisoning her, but Mary responded with, I've already been accused of that before, and they couldn't prove it. Damn, she's getting cocky. Dr. Zabane was contacted in reference to Ada's death, and agreed that he wouldn't be surprised if something was wrong with her remains. He judged and assumed that her death was caused by something very obvious, when it may have been something else. Upon looking through the records, he found that during Ada's hospital stay, she showed vast improvement and only became violently sick again upon returning home. This was enough for Inspector King to now fully be convinced that a murder had been committed in the household. A belated autopsy was ordered and toxicologists reported that the corpses of vital organs contained 11 grains of arsenic, enough to kill at least three people. Mm. Mary and Everett were promptly arrested for the murder. During their arraignment, Mary confessed to giving the poison to Miss Applegate, but her statement was mainly, like, small enough that it could apparently exonerate Everett from his charge. So it was a surprise when his indictment on the murder charge went through. He was also indicted for felony assault in connection to Ruth. During his arraignment... He was defiant and belligerent, stating that I plead guilty to this charge. And even going as far as to yell about Ruth, stating, I wish to marry this girl. I don't know where he thought that was going to be okay. I don't know
1: if he thought that was going to make everything better and they would think that, oh, he wants to marry her, so it's fine. Yeah,
0: no. No, No, sir. It was decided that the two would undergo a joint trial, both being held as defendants. And to save time on this podcast, because we're already at an hour, and a bit in my own sanity, I didn't go deep into the court proceedings. Because ultimately, like if you watch trials on TV, specifically one of the more popular ones recently, the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp trial, it goes around and around and around and around, and it's just this whirling pit of just continuously coming back to the same topic. It can get really annoying really quickly because they're trying to catch you in a lie. But we're going to surmise what went down. Um, Gatto's book, Death Row, Women, Murder, Justice, and the New York Press, the one that I mentioned before, does go into detail about this so if you're interested in the judicial side of the justice system and the processing during the court proceedings in this case go check that out but just to save us on time we're going to go through some of the more key points that were mentioned so in 1936 the trial began and it became nationwide in sensation the nassau county district attorney martin littleton was known to be an intense prosecutor and during his cross-examination he was ruthless. Mary could often be seen shifting uneasily in her wooden chair and wiping her forehead repeatedly with a handkerchief or a napkin and her eyes went wide darting around the courtroom with welling tears as he spoke to her. Mary confessed that after Everett had prepared the lethal eggnog She had served it to Ada herself, with full knowledge that it was poisoned. Everett, on the other hand, avoided the poison allegations brought before him and decided to aim for the lesser charge of statutory rape of a willing teenager. Going into graphic description and details of time, they'd even engaged in intercourse while his wife lay in the bed beside them. Ah! Yeah. Also partially why I didn't really want to go into the court proceedings because there's a lot of information that comes with that.
1: So many knows. So, so many knows. Many. Just, ah, uh, that poor girl.
0: In response to the statutory rape, Mary denied knowing any knowledge of the illicit relations between Everett and Ruth, stating that when she'd questioned their relationship, Everett had simply said that he had a fatherly love for her, the same that he had for his own daughter and mary believed him which really makes me go like oh my god what have you done to your baby girl
1: yeah definitely that's really concerning that if he felt this was okay to do with her daughter like what was he doing with his daughter Mm -hmm. either during and or before this just oh oh my god
0: yeah i'm like oh my god those Ugh. poor baby angels. I... I, mm, No. Throughout the trial, Everett emanated a cocky and arrogant, narcissistic-based attitude to the point that he was noted as being obnoxious. And his testimony, as well as his family's testimony, specifically an Uncle Joseph, who noted that during a time that he'd visited the house, Everett had stated that Ada is a real nuisance. I'd like to drop her some rat poison. Oh, wow. Yeah. These things really sealed his fate. The closing arguments began on January 24th in 1936, and by 9 p.m. that evening, the jury received the case deliberation. Less than four hours later, at 1247 a.m., The jury foreman announced the unanimous verdict had been reached. Defendants were escorted back into the courtroom. Even at that late hour, there were several hundred people waiting for the verdict to be read. Both were found guilty of first-degree murder of Ada Applegate. And Everett Applegate was found guilty of statutory rape.
1: Damn right he was. Shit.
0: Yeah. I'm like, there's no way that he couldn't have been.
1: <laughs> oh, like, he was willing to admit believe. that.
0: I'm like, oh my god. Yeah.
1: That's what I was just thinking is I still can't believe he was openly honest about that in the courtroom as if he thought that would get him out of it. Yeah. I just don't understand.
0: From some of the readings that I like saw and went through, it wasn't just that he was stating it. It was like he was proud of it, which Really twists my stomach. It makes me really uh,
1: sick. Yeah, it's disgusting.
0: On the morning of January 30th, the two were brought back into the courtroom to receive their sentence and required the existing statuses placed in the state at the time. Both were sentenced to death by electric chair. Mary was loaded into a wheelchair at 11 p.m., delirious from fear and too weak to move. July 16th she was placed into the electric chair in a catatonic unconscious like state and was delivered 2,000 volts by 1109 p.m. the smell of the burning flesh still lingered when Everett was brought in remaining collected and his final words were before God gentlemen I am absolutely innocent of the crime And I hope the good God will have mercy on the soul of Martin W. Littleton before being hustled into the chair and receiving 2,000 volts as well. Wow. Mary's final words were to a Catholic priest because she requested a baptism earlier that day. And she thought that. Becoming a Catholic would make it easier for her to face death. Her words were, I have done many wrong things, but I know God will forgive me. John knows that I was a good wife and mother, and whatever I did, I did for him and the children. I hope they will have a better life than I did.
1: That she was a good wife and mother after killing his trying to kill his, at least one of his parents, if not both of them, and mm-hmm. then also being totally okay with her 15-year-old daughter being in a sexual relationship with somebody significantly older than her.
0: Yeah. <sighs> like, whatever makes you sleep at night, but y- you really weren't. <sighs> uh. Additionally, I didn't know where to put this in, but according to The Poisoner's Handbook and a couple other resources, Mary had made a remark at some point to investigators, police, the jury, the courtroom, it varies, but I presume it was after her trial that she made a remark that her brother was a pervert and better off dead. That's why she killed him. Wow. Which speaks volumes considering... Everett's over here going after your daughter, but your brother was too much of a pervert.
1: Yeah, you're totally okay with Everett, but not
0: your brother. Ugh. She also made the remark that her mother-in-law was a sick woman determined to commit suicide.
1: Oh, so she was just helping her. Mm-hmm. Wow.
0: <laughs> Damn. Yes, that is the story of one of many cases that take place in the 1920s. I even noticed, like, halfway through here, my last one was in the 1920s, too. So apparently I'm going to stay in this time period. (laughs) I'm
1: on a 1920s kick.
0: (laughs) I'm on a 1920s and arsenic kick. (laughs) But this is one of many cases that happened in basically the united states in the 1920s because it wasn't just arsenic there was a lot of poisoning going down during the great depression era so look forward to more of that because i ended up spending 15 dollars on the poisoner's handbook because apparently karma came back to bite me in the ass for using it as a joke
1: yeah Yeah. wow oh my gosh there's a lot of layers to this one Mm mm-hmm I can't, I don't know, I'm just like, wow, she got off the hook twice, and it definitely seems like that made her cocky and feeling like, oh, you know, I can get away with whatever, and, and I, I'm not gonna get punished for it, there won't be consequences for my actions, because there haven't been before, so why would there be now? So it definitely seems like she kind of ran away with the confidence level on that one, but then the whole element of being okay with her daughter's situation is
0: just like, ah. Yeah, no. When it comes to that, literally when I read that, I'm like, ho! Oh, we got that going here too? What the fuck? Because I originally found the comment she made regarding her brother before I ever got to that section. I'm like, why would you kill your brother for being a pervert but not this asshole?
1: Seriously! Yeah, she obviously was one messed up person, so I'm not sure we can trust her judgment call on her Mm -hmm. brother if she thought that Everett's behavior was perfectly okay. (sighs) Yeah, that's- that was a tough one right there. Mm -hmm. Tough one to swallow. (sighs) I hope that poor girl grew up and managed to recover from that, losing her mother, and then that whole- childhood trauma situation with everett just that's a lot in one go to
0: recover from oh absolutely i from what i had read it sounded like when the trial was getting started they removed both of the girls i'm not entirely sure about the boy from the household and from john's care as well which i really feel bad for john because he really just wanted to stick by his wife ultimately and Like, wanted to do right by her and didn't want to believe that these things were going on. And in the end, he lost his children, too, because ultimately those kids went into Child Protective Services and were sent to basically a placement home.
1: Damn. Yeah, that's rough, because like I said earlier, you can't entirely blame him because when you're in love with somebody you're not gonna think them capable of doing an atrocity like this especially Mm -hmm. when it's not targeted towards some random stranger targeted towards family members i mean that's something that's almost i would imagine is unfathomable and so that's that's really rough that he lost his kids when he was not involved in this and he had no honest idea that this was going on
0: yep absolutely just to have that heartache of knowing that all of it was true too like she killed my parents she yeah killed her brother like that poor dude had to have gone through just the worst whiplash you could ever experience
1: yeah shit and especially looking back at it and realizing how much your wife has lied to you because obviously she was telling him that you know she had no clue about any of this she wasn't involved so now to look back at all of that and think wow I've been with this woman for how many years and you know she was the one who killed my mother and potentially father and then continued to lie to me about it and say she knew nothing about it like that's just messed up in itself even before you get to the second half of the situation of what went on after that point it's just like ugh
0: woo yeah but yeah That is the story of Mary Frances Crichton, or Mary Frances Avery. Like I said, if you're interested in more of the judicial process that went down with this case, definitely check out the book that I mentioned at the top and at that portion. I don't remember the title right now, and I've already closed out of my notes, so you don't get it here. Um, But yeah, this was definitely one of those cases that I was kind of like blindsided on for it being anything more than just like a little case and I'm sorry I will try to find a mini case so you can eventually like talk about that that one paranormal case that you have I'm so sorry (laughs) that's all good like I said I might
1: end up coming across another mini paranormal case and then we might just do a a double whammy of paranormal cases in one episode if I find too many cases (laughs) but That's
0: all good. (laughs) Mini Paranormals from Rhi.
1: (laughs) Yep, exactly.
0: (laughs) Well, on a bonus, you guys will have a paranormal episode coming to you next week from Rhi, and it will not be me again, so look forward to that. (laughs) I'm not doing poisoning for a little bit, hopefully, although apparently I'm liking this era for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> completely unintentional too i did not mean to do it i was like oh okay well we'll go look at this person like i found her name on murderpedia and i was like yeah yeah i'll go check it out and i started reading i'm like oh my god and it's just like layers of an onion unpeeling i'm like okay well it's too late to turn back now
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> but yeah look forward to next week listeners i will be bringing you a uh, really exciting paranormal tale that we've actually heard from i care if it's one or two listeners now i'd have to go back and look but at least one of you if not more than one of you has already mentioned to us that you're looking forward to this case and i'm sure many of you are as well even if you haven't spoke up yet hint hint send us recommendations and listener tales
0: yeah yeah <laughs> definitely. No,
1: uh, definitely look forward to it
0: Yep, I really look forward to it. It's an area that I know very well, so it won't be a surprise to me. There might be some ghostly encounters that are a little bit more of a surprise to me. Sorry to give a little bit of a spoiler away. But (laughs) (laughs) now you don't have to guess if it's a cryptid, a (laughs) alien encounter, or we're going somewhere haunted. But. It's definitely somewhere that I visited a lot as a child and like teenage years and even in my adulthood. And it's somewhere that I would really, really like to go back to again because it has so much history to it. And I really look forward to Ree's presentation. But until then, if you haven't already, head over to the Instagram. We are uploading new photos daily as our October drop and basically getting caught up with old episodes over there. Also, if you haven't already, make sure to hit that follow and that subscribe button if you're listening to us on YouTube.
1: Definitely. Yep. Make sure you're
0: following us on all the social medias and also on YouTube for sure. All right. Well, I don't have much else. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, listeners. (laughs) Uh, Bye. Thank you again for listening to Haunting Cases Podcast.
1: Please make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Haunting Cases
0: Podcast and on Twitter at Haunting Cases. If you have a listener tale, story request, or any questions, email us at podcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast from. So, what do you say, listeners? Are, Are you haunted, haunted too?